0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Today we are continuing in our series. It's called Joy, and we've been taking a journey through Philippians, which has been powerful and helpful in a lot of different ways. This is a pastoral letter. Paul wrote it to the church at Philippi roughly a decade after he planted that church. Um, And as we've been working through this, last week we encountered some of the most precious and powerful promises in all of the scriptures regarding the peace of God and freedom from anxiety. That should be posted soon, uh, so you'll have access to that if you missed it. Uh, This week we're going to learn about the joy-producing power of contentment in Christ. And so we're going to read together Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. We're going to go to verse 14 together, okay? "'But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity.' In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. Praise God for his word. Uh, Verse 13 is by far the most famous of these four verses. And um, here at Love City, we really, we believe what the Bible says. And so to prove it, uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bench press this grand piano while you guys read that verse out loud, okay? I believe whatever, whatever I do by the power of God, uh, I can do anything, all right? So you guys have to read the verse really loud this isn't going to work, okay? Are you guys ready? I'm going to count to three. You read the verse together. Don't leave me hanging. I could die under here. Ready, one. Two, I hope you weren't going to do it. That's an April Fool's joke. I'm one day late, but I didn't think you guys would mind. That's not what that verse means, okay? We'll talk about what it does actually mean. <laughs> Somebody didn't stand up and cry heresy, man. What's wrong with this church? I thought I trained you all better than that. Okay, we'll keep going. Um, God, now... That isn't what the verse means, but God has promised in John chapter 5 that if we pray according to his will, he does hear us, um, and we will have what we ask for. Very key there that we pray according to his will. However, neither that verse nor this verse here, 13, is saying if we have enough faith, we can bench press a bus or fly like Superman or be successful in business or attain whatever goal we dream up in our precious little noggins, okay? And, and some of you might be thinking, oh, man, why are you even talking about this? Everybody knows this. Listen to me. Go on Google and Google Philippians 4.13 fail and just look at the pictures, all right? There are so many tattoos and so many inspirational sports posters with this verse on it, it'll gag you, okay? So this, this problem has not gone away. Uh, taking scripture out of context, um, misapplying it in very egregious ways, has, has, it's never, probably never going to stop uh, until Jesus comes and makes all of his enemies his footstool. And sets everything that's gone wrong because of sin right, uh, including the misuse of his scripture. So, um, my great hope is that I'm hoping it's not news to most of you that that's not what that verse means. But um, I think that many of you do know that this verse doesn't mean if we add some Jesus into an anything is positive through positive thinking ideology, that we can just do everything we imagine. But at the same time, I think some of you, though, you know that, you're kind of bummed about it. I think some of you maybe wish that's what it meant. My my hope today is to show you that what this verse is actually teaching is far better than Jesus empowering us to do everything we put our minds to. Praise God. Okay, so we're going to go back and actually start in verse 10 and I'll work through this together. Um, it says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. It sounds a little bit like Paul's making kind of a backhanded comment here, but he really isn't. Um, and the way we know is from the second half of the verse, because he says, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Uh, in a New American Standard Bible here, it, it sa- he says, Revive, that you revived your concern for me, but it really could also read, and it, it does in some other translations, that um, they're, they flourished or continued in their concern for him, or their, their concern flourished and continued. Okay, so, what Paul is really doing here is he's rejoicing, and he is thankful that even though at some point in his missionary journeys, the Philippians either lost contact with him, they just couldn't get a hold of him, right? We're talking about um, the ancient Near East, and so uh, they couldn't just email him, find out where he was at. Um, either they couldn't find him, or they just lost contact with him. They were not able for some period of time to get support to him. Even though that was true, they did not have an out-of-sight, out-of-mind mentality, Right? Um, Paul did not have to keep writing them support letters and including, you know, selfies of the viper getting shook into the fire or him floating after a shipwreck or something to get them to keep supporting him, right? Like, plus you guys all know they didn't have selfie sticks back then, anyways. But um, the bottom line is, it wasn't because just because they didn't hear from Paul for a while or they weren't able to be in contact with him, they they didn't just forget about him. And so they they kept they kept their concern for what he was doing and what was going on, right? Um, He's thankful that even though he didn't keep sending them support letters, they stayed motivated to support the preaching of the gospel and the building of the kingdom through Paul. Um, They knew that through their giving, uh, they were as much a part of the work of ministry as Paul was, and they took their role as generous supporters seriously, okay? Um, That's verse 10. Okay, so we're going to take verses 11 through 13 together Because not doing that is what leads to misinformed tattoos and inspirational coffee mugs, okay? So we're going to take all those verses together um, and see what it is the Lord would would say to us. So let's just read those one more time together. He says, so essentially he's like, thank you for not giving up on me, even though you couldn't find me for a while. You guys kept caring about supporting the gospel and kingdom building through uh, me. But, so then he's like, not that I speak from want... For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so verse 13 is a beautiful verse. It's a powerful verse. But what it's talking about is this incredible God-ordained, God-empowered capability that no matter what is going on, no matter what situation he's facing, whether he has plenty or little, whether he's in the midst of comfort or great struggle, he is able to stay focused upon God's mission and grateful and content. This is a miracle. This is not easy, Um, and we're going to talk some about why, okay? Uh, What we see here is that having the precious treasure of contentment is what verse 13 is talking about. Through the strength of our risen Savior, we can be grateful and content with little or with much, with comfort or difficulty, when life is going just like we planned or literally everything seems to be going wrong. It's interesting that verse 11 says, he learned to be content. This tells us that contentment does not come naturally. And we probably don't have to look very hard for an example of this, right? at yourself. Man, somebody have something for that? Um, I think we all to some degree know we have a tendency towards discontentment, to not be grateful in every situation, Uh, to always think to some degree the grass is greener on the other side or some variety of that thought. Uh, My hope is by now you have questions stirring in your hearts and minds, Uh, questions like, okay, how do we learn this? If, if, If contentment is such a beautiful gift from God, how do we learn it? How do we learn it like Paul did? How do we receive this strength from Jesus to live in the joy and stability that comes from godly contentment? I'm hope, I hope you're asking those questions, and those are the questions we're going to seek to answer. Okay, So we're going to seek to lay out what this looks like by grace, uh, by the grace and wisdom of God, but I want to just take a moment to clear out of the way what it doesn't look like um, to avoid any confusion uh, and not, not miss it. Sometimes figuring out what something does look like, it helps to figure out what it doesn't look like. So, uh, First of all, I would say contentment and complacency are not the same thing. It is wicked and foolish to justify laziness by saying, I'm just content in God. Oh, some some of you know a lazy person that's pulled that one before, huh? (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm just content in the Lord. Philippians 4, man. No, you're not. Sluggard. Here's why why we know they're not the same thing, because just several paragraphs before this in chapter 3, Paul encouraged us to never consider ourselves having reached perfection, but he says this, and I quote, "...continue pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus." Complacency and contentment are not the same thing. A complacent person encounters difficulty and stops, settles into a rut, and gets comfortable there. A content person encounters difficulty refuses to complain, and instead rejoices in God's promises while they keep moving forward on God's mission. That's the difference. Contentment does does not mean we buy the lie that we are stuck and God either can't or won't help. Contentment doesn't mean we have no desire for growth and improvement as long as those desires spring forth from the right motives. Contentment is not giving up. It is having the strength by God's grace to patiently trust him no matter the circumstance. So how is it that Paul learned to be content? How is it that we can learn to be content? There's three, three things we're going to look at from the scriptures today. There's probably more that could be said on this. Um, and if you want to talk more about it, let's, let's get together because this is, this is really super important. Um, I, I wish this verse was famous for what it really means because you almost can't overemphasize um, the importance of contentment and gratitude in the Christian life. It's it's woven throughout the entirety of the Scriptures as as a primary principle and something for us to be aware of and obedient to. All right, so I'm going to give you three things. The first thing is, uh, as far as how to be content, how to learn to be content, is to remember where you came from and what you deserve. Now, the first thing I want to do is say, I realized that two Sundays ago, uh, we preached about forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. But we talked about the fact that that doesn't mean we get spiritual amnesia, and we have that, that forgetting what lies behind means I have no recollection whatsoever of what's happened. What it means is we don't dwell on those those negative things and dwell on those our, our own failures or p- ways that we feel we've been failed um, that, that would cause us to kind of again settle down into complacency, right? So, forgetting what when Paul says he's forgetting what lies behind to press forward to what lies ahead, he's not talking about uh, a total wiping of his memory. It's, it's forgetting the right things and remembering the right things. And so, part of how we um, can learn to be content is to remember where you came from and what you deserve. Um, in the book of Nehemiah, there is an amazing account. Uh, this, this happens right after they have returned from exile and they have finished rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. The wall had been in ruins. Nehemiah came and found that. Uh, he got the, the king that he was serving to essentially give him the materials and the permission to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so uh, they've finished that task. And that that ha- brings you right up to chapter 8 of the book of Nehemiah. So I just want to read you some verses uh, from chapter 8. This is not even um, exactly in order. I'm just giving you enough so that we can get the point of what's going on here, okay? So just please, please listen to this. Um, and, and, and see what it is God would say to us through it. This is so powerful. It says, And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, Eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The first thing I want to say is not necessarily to do with why we're here, and it won't take long. I just want you to know that when I talk about revival, this is what I mean. Did you, hear what, did you hear what was going on there? It said, first of all, when, when, when Ezra opened up the book of the law, man, the people stood. And he said they sat there and read the book of the law. That's the first five books. That's the books Moses wrote. The law of God given to the people of God. He they said they read it from early morning until midday. I don't, I don't know what exactly what that means. I'm thinking that's got to be at least a four-hour window of the people of God standing there. And what did it say? They were attentive to the law of God. They stood in respect to the reading of the law of God, that word of God. They were hungry for what it said. Did you notice there was a wood podium set up for, the, the, for that exact purpose? To me, this is, this, is, this is one of the first models of what we have as a church service. He, they were up there preaching. The Levites were there. Nehemiah was there. They were translating because most of the people they were talking to had been in exile, they had forgotten the language. They didn't even know half of what was going on. And so not only did they read, they were sitting there attentive for hours to the reading of the law of God, and half of them couldn't even understand the language. And then they were waiting excitedly for the, expecta- the explanation of what was going on with expectation. And then what does it say? It says that as, as the law of God was being read, they declared, amen, amen, may it be so. It, they lifted their hands in worship, and they bowed their faces to the ground in worship. When I, when I think of the Spirit of God breathing upon a place, when I think of revival moving through a land, I see people's heart turned back with hunger towards the Word of God. I see them being able to have the endurance to stand as these people did for hours. Nobody's checking clocks. Nobody's checking sundials, right? They are there, and they are stoked on what is going on. They're excited about it, and they respond. They respond in worship. They're they're broken as they hear these laws because they know that they, they have not obeyed what is being read to them. And so their, their reaction is to be broken. What I think is beautiful here though um, is, is that, that the, the priests, the Levites, Nehemiah, Ezra, the leaders, they, they say, no, 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 don't, don't mourn over this. That's not the right reaction. I, and, and don't get from that that we should never mourn over a sin. We absolutely should. But they said this day, what this is This is the restoring of the word and the law of God being brought back to the people. This is the Lord's day. This is a day of celebration. We have not had these precious words of God for so long, and now we have them again. And so today is a day of celebration. They said, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, go bless somebody that doesn't have anything. We're going to celebrate because we have God's word again. And that's what they called him to. And and here's here's what's beautiful. The very next thing that happens, if you continue to read, the very next thing, after what I just read you, that, that, where he says, um, For this day is holy to our Lord, so do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right after that, the very next thing, as they're reading the law, they notice this thing called the Feast of Booths. And uh, the Feast of Booths was like the Passover. What it was meant to do was cause everyone to remember something that God has done. And so right after this account of this this gathering of God's people and revival beginning to break out again in Jerusalem, the Spirit of God returning and the law of God being given to the people again. And then first mourning over how they don't stack up to it, but then rejoicing just at the simple fact that they have it. Then what they're turned to is this, this it says that they reinstituted, they brought back the Feast of Booths. And what was that? The Feast of Booths was something that, that the the people of God were supposed to recognize every year, and what they would do is they would go out of their homes, and they would go out to the wilderness, and they would pick certain branches out of certain types of trees, and they would, uh, they would build really small huts. Thank you, man. Ooh, that looks fancy. All right. Um, so they would build these, little, they'd build these little tiny huts, and here's what they were doing. So they'd build them all over the city. They'd build them right by the water gate, right where they just had this church service. They were building them all over the place. It'd be just a little tiny thatched thing, and they and their family would go and live in that thing for a week. And and you might be like, that doesn't sound like a celebration, but it was. This was a festival, and what it was doing is it was causing them to remember the time in the wilderness where God provided for their needs, and they kept moving around, and they had to stay in these little tiny things they would make as they went on that 40-year camping trip and learned how to trust God. And what it was supposed to do is it was supposed to make them remember Every single year, they would leave the comfort of their home, and they would go out, and they would build that little hut, and they would be telling their kids as they're putting the thatched roof on, this is what God did with our ancestors. This is what we did. We were jackalopes the whole time, but God stuck with us. He was merciful. He stayed true to his promises. And these are the kind of things that our family stayed in as they wandered in the wilderness on the way to coming here to this promised land that God gave us, this fulfillment of his faithfulness. And uh It's it's beautiful that they were doing that. What they were supposed to do is remember. They were supposed to remember, without the merciful and sovereign intervention of their God, they would have been enslaved under Pharaoh forever. They were supposed to remember that even though they were stiff-necked and rebellious in the wilderness, God provided for them, and he still mercifully led them to the promised land. What does all this have to do with discontentment, friends? We become discontented when we forget that without the merciful and sovereign intervention of our God we would still be enslaved to sin and death. We become discontented and and with a lack of gratitude when we forget that even though we are often a stiff-necked and rebellious people, even after God rescues us from the domain of darkness that he stays with us and he walks with us and he promises never to leave us or forsake us. He's with us in that wilderness during the time of our sanctification. He doesn't leave us and he's faithful to us and his mercy extends beyond what our imagination can even conceive, but we forget. And then we get discontented. And then we start wishing it was some different way. We forget what God has done. And so I don't know. Maybe we need to build little huts and live outside for a week. I don't know. We got to do something though. We got to do better than we do. We need to remember. We can't forget how good God has been to us in, in, in saving us by grace through faith, for justifying us, making us righteous in his sight through no work of our own. And then, and then even when we oftentimes rebel, even when we are unthankful, even when we slip and fall and we don't follow the path he's laid out for us, he stays with us. He's, he's a loving father that continues to beckon to us. And he, and he, and he, and he wants us. How do we ever get discontented? How do we ever look at what's going on around us? And and because we forget those things, end up feeling like we're getting a raw deal. We we have to forget what God has done. We have to have that spiritual amnesia to get to the point where we're, we're not overflowing with gratitude and content in every situation. We also become discontented not only when we forget what God has done, but when we forget what it is, we actually deserve discontentment is predicated upon this idea. I deserve better than this. Can I help you with that, dear friend? Let let me say this first. I love you. I'm going to make a love sandwich. I love you. Here's what you deserve. Death and hell. I love you. It's a love sandwich. The bread was love. The meat in the middle was the hard part. I don't know if you understand that. I don't know if you truly grasp that Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, that every single one of us, because of the stain and imperfection of sin, what we deserve, what you deserve, is death and hell, separation from God forever. And so if you're not in either of those situations, you're getting better than you deserve. Are you with me? Then how are we ever discontent? but I don't have enough money. What? You're not dead or in hell. Which is what you deserve? God has been gracious to us in so many more ways than we know. Is everything the way you wish it was? I'm sure not. But we need to judge what we're wishing for, first of all. And secondly, in the midst of the process of God working with us, we need to be able to find the same kind of contentment that Paul described here. If I wait a long time, that's a spot for you to say amen. Okay, two of you know that word. All right, good. We'll, we'll work on it. We'll have a class. Okay. I, don't, I, I know that's heavy. I hope it's sitting on you. I hope, I hope the conviction of the fact that any of us has ever been discontented, we, we understand we had to have forgotten what we really deserve. There may be some of you to various degrees that don't believe that that's what you actually deserve. I, I would turn your dear friend to, to the scriptures that has the only accurate description of of reality when it comes to these things. Eternally, what you have have earned (laughs) in and of yourself is damnation. What Jesus earned for you is righteousness and salvation through his finished work. What business do I have then in any circumstance where where I'm not dead and in hell, which is what I deserve, Finding myself complaining, discontented, or with a lack of gratitude—that's that's the premise. Okay. So the first thing that helps us to be content and stay content in a godly way is to remember where you came from and remember what it is you actually deserve. Probably should have started with a nicer one. There's nicer ones now. All right. We'll keep going. To find something you like. Uh, the second one is <clears throat> to rejoice with the Lord. Rejoice with the Lord. We often fail to be content because we seek for joy in things that can never really produce it. When our attention and affection are set too much on the temporary trappings of this world, we settle for little counterfeit comforts and circumstantial happiness. When we fail to realize that contentment and joy are meant to supersede every situation and be present in both triumphs and trials... We spend our energies trying to control everything, which ultimately leads to exhaustion and frustration. Did you track with that? Because it's, ultimate, it's, it's of ultimate importance. When we fail to realize that contentment and joy should supersede every situation, we should have those in every situation. They should be present both when we're on top of the mountain and we feel like we're in the deepest part of the valley. If we forget about contentment and joy, then what we end up doing is we spend our energies trying to control everything. We try to build Little walls and insulations and 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 lives that we, we, where we won't run into any difficulty. Where because we don't believe contentment and joy and good things can be found in difficulty, so we, we do everything we can to try to and, and people go at this a lot of different ways. And I don't have time to explain every way we do this wrong, but there's a lot of ways where we, we try to do everything we can to insulate ourselves from pain, to control every little variable, and some people are, can go longer than others, but the, the invariable end of that is you can't control everything. I don't know if you have lived a life yet to figure that out, but you will at some point. You can't control all the factors. Uh, you weren't meant to. You don't have the power to do that. And when you try, you end up exhausted and frustrated. And oftentimes, then you're discontented and mad at God because he didn't let you control all the variables. When all the time he was saying, if you would trust me to control the variables, and you follow me, you seek after me, you have a lot more joy, you have a lot more contentment, a lot more peace, because you're trying to be me. And that's our problem most of the time, isn't it, friends? Can we be honest? That we're trying to be God. That was a problem in the garden. They didn't want to just know good and evil, man. They wanted to decide what good and evil was. That's our problem. We think we should sit in God's seat, and we are wrong. <laughs> Amen. One way to avoid this trap is to delight yourself in the Lord to such a degree that you rejoice in what He rejoices in. Jesus does not delight in trinkets or temporary comforts or the avoidance of hardships. He rejoices in setting captives free, empowering His people for gospel mission, and obeying the Father no matter the cost. And so when we delight ourselves in the Lord, that we can begin to rejoice in what he rejoices in, it begins to change everything. There's a lot less disappointment and a lot more reason for celebration. Please listen closely as, as I read you these verses. That they're going to speak to what it is I'm saying. Okay, Romans 14, 17 says this, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Do you remember what Paul said? He said, I know how to get along with humble means and also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering. Need. What does Romans 14 say? It says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not so much about these needs. It's the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. When we begin to rejoice in what God rejoices in, when we hunger most for the things that, that um, God delights in, uh, we, we begin to feel a whole lot less of that, that, that sense of ingratitude or discontentment because we're able to join him in rejoicing the things he's rejoicing in, and uh, we, we quit feeling let down for things that were never really for our good anyways. Let me read you Luke fifteen seven. This is Jesus. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What's, what's he say here? In God, God, those in heaven are going to rejoice over one sinner who repents. We could, get into, we could get into what it means that he says over 99 righteous, well, we will, just real quick. 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Really what he's saying is, people who think they need no repentance, self-righteous people, because Jesus understands that there's nobody in existence that doesn't actually need repentance, right? And so he's, he's, he's jabbing at the Pharisees who think they need no repentance, who think they've reached a level of piety and holiness that they now have no need uh, to repent before God, and they've, they've pretty much ascended the ladder of spirituality uh, to the point that they, you know, they think they have reached perfection. But, but the key here is, what, I, what, I, what we're here for is, he says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's, so that's my question to you, friend. When you think about what gets you, what gets you amped the most, I, I don't, that was probably early 2000s. Uh, what's the word? Vernacular? Yeah, I thought that one, but that's not what I wanted. Um, slang. That'll work. That's probably early 2000s slang. Um, so I don't know what the kids are saying today. Is it turnt? That's a new one. What? Is that good or is that bad? Does that mean something else? I better quit trying. So whatever gets you excited, man. If you think, think about what gets you excited. Think about what stirs your affections. Think about what you actually really delight in. D- do you delight like heaven does? See, what Jesus is saying, here's, here's what gets heaven pumped. Here's when heaven celebrates. When one sinner repents comes from death to life from darkness to light does the work of the gospel does the building of the kingdom does sinners coming to repentance and finding salvation do you rejoice in that and i don't mean just a little bit i mean is is that one of the things that of all the things you could hear of that would bring a smile to your face that would stir your heart's affections that would cause you to say i i am full of joy is the salvation of sinners something that moves your heart and cause you to be excited and full of joy? Do you join in God as he rejoices over repenting sinners, over those who did not have the hope of the gospel being given the hope of the gospel? Is, is that, do you rejoice with him in that? Are you able, like him, to not be as focused on how much you're able to eat or drink or whatever your, your, your comforts are, what's important to you? But do you, do you, do you focus on righteousness and peace and joy? In the Holy Spirit. God rejoices in things. And as the more and more we rejoice with the Lord and we, our joy is tied to the things that cause him joy and, 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 and our will and our desires are, are intertwined with his, hopefully to the point, to the degree that the, it gets to the place where they almost can't even be designated. That's what I want. I want to get to the place where my hopes and dreams and desires, the things that, that I rejoice in are so tied to and so intertwined with the fathers that you couldn't really tell them apart. I want to rejoice in what he rejoices, in. and that's how that scripture works, man. People say, oh yeah, God will give you the desires of your heart. If you do the first part of the verse, man, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is what delighting yourself in the Lord looks like. When you love what he loves, when you rejoice in what he rejoices in, when you get amped about what he gets amped about, are you excited about what, when, when heaven's celebrating, are you wishing you had a bigger whatever or a shinier newer whatever or whatever it is that's making you feel discontent, a better job, a better relationship, get out of the one you're in of either of those. What, what are you discontent about? What, what is your eyes focused on? Or, or are you excited and rejoicing with God and looking for opportunities to be full of joy because his hand is at work? Are you, are you talking to people? Are you learning people's stories? Are you hearing about the testimonies of God in, in their life so that even if there is a moment of temptation where you could fall into that discontented, kind of stiff-necked, Israelites in the wilderness, I don't like manna, kind of attitude that we all get, do you know, do you know enough other people's stories that if you, even if you begin to forget how incredibly merciful and good God has been to you yourself, do you know some other people's testimonies so you can, you can grab joy and rejoice in the fact that God has moved for them? Or are you isolated? Are you an island to yourself? Do you sit there on the hamster wheel of your own thoughts? And do you get real focused on everything you wish was different? We need to rejoice with the Lord, not just in the Lord. Praise God that he allows us to. That he'll allow us, our hearts to be moved and our our emotions to be tied to um, what what it is that, that his are, that we can rejoice in what he rejoices in. Praise God. Joy of the Lord is our strength because his joy becomes our joy. And that's beautiful. The third thing I want to give you is, uh, is to draw strength from Jesus. It's very clear here that this idea of contentment, this idea of, of gratitude and contentment in every circumstance, no matter what's going on, it is tied very clearly in verse 13 to uh, the Lord Jesus and his strength. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We will never just decide contentment is right, and so I'm going to do it. Um, we, can, we can learn, as Paul did, how to be content, but ultimately, um, those things we learn, if not empowered by and brought to life by the power of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit, um, they, it, it will just lead to more works-based righteousness attempts and disappointments and failures. Uh, without the power of God at work, we will not rejoice in what he rejoices, and we, we will not be content, and we will not be grateful. Um, and, and the sad thing is, it's, for some of us, if, if we're to be totally honest, if some, some of us it doesn't even have to be that bad of a situation. Like, we, we've, we've gotten so far away from God's will when it comes to these things, we're, we're almost like, our standard mode is almost discontentment and ingratitude. We're like looking for what's wrong. In most cases, and I'm not saying everybody has to have a perma-smile, you know. Like I'm not going to name anybody, but you you can't. I'm not. That's not what I'm talking about. Because we talked about throughout this series, man. You can have the joy of the Lord and be weeping over a situation. Those things are not mutually exclusive. Because joy is so much deeper than an emotion. It, It is. It is a spiritual thing. It is a fruit of the spirit, man. And it's something that we can have in the midst of all trouble, in the midst of every difficulty. And we can be bawling our eyes out over some difficulty in this life, and that is not wrong. But in the midst of that, in the middle of that, we can still be content in God and full of his joy. An anchor for our soul, even though the storm would have us toppled and broken. Praise God for that. And if we rejoice with the Lord and we rejoice in the Lord how is it that your joy could ever be taken? Is God going to change? Is he going to quit his mission? And so if you're rejoicing in him and who he is, and you're rejoicing in him and what he's done, how can joy ever be taken from you? It can't be. The only way you don't have it is when you give it up. You let go, or you throw it away. That's the promise here. In order for this to be true, we are going to need to draw strength From Jesus. We are going to need his help. We can do we can we can be content in every situation through him who strengthens us, but it's only going to be through him who strengthens us. John 15, 5 says this. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I know almost Every week, I tell you, like, like whatever it is the Bible's encouraging us towards, I tell you almost every week, like, you're gonna need the Holy Spirit's help to do this. But that's just because I know your heart is bent towards, I can get that one. I can do this. And I just I need you to know your heart is bent towards that. I need you to watch out for it. I need you to understand that your your standard answer is gonna be, oh, okay, all right, I see that's the right thing. Okay, I'm gonna I'm, then I'm gonna I'm gonna do the right thing. Because it's it's hard for us to not do that thing we talked about earlier, which is try to control everything. We ha- put the, one of the major parts of, of sin that, that happened, it, it's this thing in us, that one of the roots of every sin is the pride that makes us feel like we can be God ourselves. That's the problem. And so you will try to be God yourself even when you're trying to do good things for God. You can't do that. You're going to need him. You're going to have to yield to him. You're going to have to trust him. You're going to need his power. You're going to have to admit, I am weak. I need to diminish. I need to decrease so you can increase. You need to understand, John 15, 5, Jesus is not just talking about gardening here. These are not gardening tips, all right? He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You ever seen a branch disconnected from the vine doing very well? no because it is disconnected from the very source of life, which is what happened to our first parents in the garden. It is what we suffered from until and up until the point where King Jesus came, transferred us from, from darkness to light and from death to life. That's when we were grafted back into the light, the source of all life and joy and hope for in this life and for eternity. That is he himself, God. That was not possible without the work of Christ. That's why Jesus had to come be a perfect, sinless lamb who, who willingly laid himself down to die on a cross in our sins for our, for our redemption and for our purchase away from that old evil taskmaster, sin and death. And not only did he die on the cross, but three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death finally and forever. It is because of that that we can be a branch on the vine. If not, we can, we can never be connected to that, that source of life. It is by the grace of God that we are grafted in. And our only hope is in him and his power. If we do not lean and draw from the strength of King Jesus, when it comes to these things, when it comes to contentment and gratitude and what we're discussing today or anything it is we're going to attempt to do in this life, if we are not drawing our strength from the Lord Jesus and it's coming from some other source, that source will fail. And great will be the destruction. Great will be the disappointment. So let's skip that, friends. That's like, just, let's just skip that. Let's not do it that way. Let's trust the Lord Jesus. He's the only shot you got for this going well. Any other way you try to do it, man, this goes bad. Let me read you another verse. This is from the uh, book of Peter. He says, and though you have not seen him, and though you have not seen him, You love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, I know sometimes it's hard. It feels difficult that we don't, we don't get the, we don't get the opportunity the disciples got, right? They were with Jesus physically. I know some of you feel this way, and I've felt this way before, that if, if I would just have been better off if I had the chance to get an invite to the three-year camping trip with Jesus, right? If I could have been there for the fish broils and for the miracles and, and just kicking it with Jesus in the desert, right? And if I could have been there at the Mount of Transfiguration, if I could have been there when he let Thomas touch the wounds, like I, I, would, I, I wouldn't be so prone to falter. I wouldn't be so prone to doubt, None of that is true. Can I read you this again? Listen to it in in, in the context of what I just said to you. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Friends, I firmly believe the disciples look at us today with the fullness of the Word of God assembled for us, with the Holy Spirit released upon the earth as our our helper and our comforter. And I fully anticipate that they envy our position. Not in a competition way, but I'm I'm just telling you If if what we rejoice in is what God rejoices in, if what we are about is what He is about, if we are about the mission of God and the glory of God and the declaring of God's perfect Word and His gospel throughout the earth, if that's what we're about and that's what we care about, then we are in a better spot than the disciples were that walked with the Master, because they did not have the entirety of God's Word, they did not have all of this assembled, they did not have the holy. They had the Holy Spirit after Jesus left. But these scriptures were not even fully put together for them. At the time of this writing, this this was not all together. We sit in a privileged time in history. Aside from that, we have tools at our disposal for the the spreading and furthering of the gospel that other generations could only have dreamed about. Do you understand the internet would have been magic 50 years ago, right? Right? There's going to be a day where everyone's going to hold a device in their pocket that contains the entirety of all information known to mankind throughout all of history. Tell somebody that in 1950. And they'd say, wow, what, do they, what, do they use, what, what, what would they use that for? That's incredible. Well, they watch a lot of cat videos and argue with each other. I- <laughs> I'm laughing, but like I'm crying inside. This, I have joy in the Lord, but honestly, honestly God, I mourn over... I, I think we're going to answer, guys, for the time and place we live in. We can travel like nobody's ever been... Do you understand how much danger Paul was in every single time he left a place and went to another place to plant a church? In grave danger every time, because travel was so difficult. How difficult communication was. Some guy... Epaphroditus had to take this scroll and run to Philippians and hope he didn't get caught by marauders or get shipwrecked or die by some other crazy thing before he got it there, but he was willing to do that. And half the time, we don't utilize this even to, to one one-hundredth of the potential. The fact that the ability we have to reach out to people, the fact that the the, the, the fact that even in the last five to ten years, we we now have this this thing called social media, where do you understand that 30 years ago, people did not have a platform for the world to see their thoughts? Do you understand that you couldn't just, here's what I think, nobody cared. I mean, they still don't care to some degree, but there was not even a way to get it out there. Do you understand the potential that we have to put the gospel out there, to use these these influence points to to push forward the, the, the good news of the gospel, to represent Christ, in in, in, a, in a fruitful way, and I just believe. I, I think we need to think about it more, and I think every single person is going to answer for fruitfulness in the time and place where they were. How? What did you do with what you were given for the glory of God and the furthering of his gospel? I think a lot of times, discontentment and lack of gratitude causes us to not be focused on God's mission primarily. And so we are distracted, and those things that could be used as tools for the furthering of God's glory and the good news of his gospel end up being yet another distraction that slows it down. I'm not anti these things, but we need to steward these things well. We need to understand them for the opportunity that they are. And we need to understand that uh, there, there is accountability, man. The Bible says God establishes the time and place where he put us. And and sometimes I wonder, like, what? (laughs) what would Paul have done if he stuck him now? Like, or if Paul had the tools we have, right? This guy rocked the face of the planet with the gospel. And he had papyrus rolls, you know what I mean? And his feet, like, that's what he was working with. And it seems to me, I, I, know, I know the gospel is advancing. I, I know it is going places it's never gone before. God is still moving and working, but it, 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 just, it just feels like sometimes we are not coming anywhere near the potential we have with what we've been given for letting people know there is hope in this life and for eternity through Christ. I'm done on that horse. I'm laying that at your feet for you to pray and consider. I'm thankful that we don't have to see him to love him. I'm thankful we don't have to see him to believe in him. He's proven himself true and faithful in countless, innumerable, and immeasurable ways. I'm thankful we can greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Do you, do you understand what that means? Our joy in Christ, the way it can be, because of the love he has for us, the love we have for him, because of the glory of what he's done, we can have joy inexpressible. That's joy that is is so awesome, I can't describe it. I, I would fail with any language humans could come up with to describe to you how full and beautiful and wonderful this joy in God alone is. Inexpressible joy. And it's full of glory. And we obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Friends like the Feast of Booths. I don't think you need to build a hut in your backyard and live in it for a week. I mean, if you do, do it, man, I don't care. Whatever it takes, seriously. I'm not joking. If, if, if you need that to hit the reset button on the way you think, then do it. Do something crazy. Do whatever it takes to stop being a discontented brat, to stop being an ungrateful, self-absorbed person. Do whatever it takes. Deny yourself something. But ultimately, what it's got to come back to is, is this verse. We obtain as the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls. Listen, here's the Israelites, when, when, when they reinstated the Feast of Booths, what were they remembering? They were remembering the wilderness. They were remembering the fact that God brought them out of Egypt. And even though they complained, and even though they were terrible, and they were stiff-necked, God stuck with them. And, and, and he, he gave them Moses as a good leader, and he gave them water in the desert, and he performed miracle after miracle to sustain them and keep them going. And what they were headed to... Was was the promised land and, and he delivered on that promise. God was faithful. And guys, what we have to see is the whole time God was doing that, He was, He was, <laughs> He was foreshadowing. I mean, it's, it's so clear. He rescues his people from the taskmaster, the evil one, Pharaoh. And then he takes them on this journey where they 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 learn how to trust him and they 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 don't do it perfectly and they mess up a lot, but he's faithful and merciful and stays with them along the way and then he brings them to the promised land. Friend, if you don't see yourself in that story, I don't know, I don't know how else, I mean, I can get crayons. I'll do whatever. Meet me after service, man, and I will do that with crayons. That's, that story is our story. That's why we need to remember it too, man. That's why we need a feast of boots. We need to do something to remember how good God has been. But we're not just remembering what happened in the Old Testament, we're remembering the fulfillment of what that was foreshadowing, the fact that Jesus did come. He did live that perfect life we never could, and then he died the death that we should have and rose from the grave. How is it, if we're remembering that, how is it, if the thoughts of what God has done are filling our, our imaginations and filling our meditations, how is it we ever become discontented? If, if all we have is that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls, the fact that by faith alone, the fact that God is not causing us to work off for uh, after we die for millennia, try to, trying to tip the scale back over, get us to do a bunch of good things, to work off all the bad things we've done. There's so many other ways he could have done this that would seem more just. To me, the way this should work is, I would think after I die, I should have to work for, I don't know, two, three million years doing good stuff to offset all the bad stuff I've done. Now, I know I'm worse than most of you in here. I'm just telling you, I'm looking at a a several million year sentence to work off my bad. That seems like justice to me. But somehow, dear friend, the justice of God works like this. I have that incredible debt over my head, but King Jesus was allowed to pay it for me. And if I'll just believe and trust that he did that, I get to be counted righteous like he is. Woo! And I'm discontented about, what? I'm struggling with gratitude about, what? Man, I'm not dead or in hell. I'm doing good. God's grace is very evident in my life when just those two things are true. Friends, may we celebrate and remember that every single day. And may we seek by the grace and the power of God to push that hope to the ends of the earth to as many people as possible. May we be a people who are content but never complacent. May we be a people who remember all our God has done and may we be a people who rejoice with our King, rejoicing in what brings Him joy for our good and His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You in the name of Jesus. Lord God, I thank You. Philippians 4, I thank you, Lord, for Philippians 4.13. I thank you, God, that it's so much more beautiful that you've promised to strengthen us so that we can stay content and grateful in the midst of any difficulty... That we can, you've promised that if we will seek after your help and power to do so, that we can have our minds, our thinking correct, our hearts correct, no matter what trial or difficulty comes. I thank you, God, that's so much better than believing I can dunk a basketball by your strength or I can, I can run five marathons in a row. God, I I know how much more difficult it is to stay content and grateful and right in my heart in the midst of an imperfect, sin-filled world than it is to do any of those things. This promise is beautiful. This promise is almost inexplainable and inexpressible in its beauty. Thank you that you've promised that by your strength, we never have to live in the misery of discontent or ingratitude. Thank you, oh God, for the example of the Israelites during the time of Nehemiah. God, may we figure out what it looks like for us to have Passover and have the Feast of Booths in our own life. Help us to figure out what it's going to take that our minds would be set and our hearts would be focused upon what it is that you've done. The, the, the inexpressible and, and unable to be described beauty and glory of salvation by grace through faith. Oh, God. How do we ever, ever get out of gratitude for that? Lord, help us to understand how it is. We can be full of joy and gratitude, yet still mourn with those who mourn, and yet still mourn over situations that hurt us. God, help us to understand these are deep things. We need the power of your Spirit to understand the difference between complacency and contentment. We need the help of your Spirit to understand how we can have joy that is our strength, even as we mourn and, and even as we're sad. Thank you, Lord, that those, those things are true, that they're not mutually exclusive. Please anoint us by your strength, God. We know you are the vine and we are the branches. We know without you, we can do nothing. God, our hearts are stirred today. We want to obey you in these things. But we, we stand before you and say, we, we cannot do this without you. We know we need your help. And so please, God, anoint us for this. Lord, for those that are within the sound of my voice that maybe uh, haven't decided yet that this is what they want, I ask that you would trouble them by your spirit, God. I ask that you would be with them and deal with them and continue to draw them towards a desire, a greatest desire of rejoicing with you, that their heart's desires would, would be conformed to yours, that they would delight themselves in you so that you could give them the desires of their heart. Lord, may you continue to draw us towards deeper and more full and more beautiful surrender to you each and every day. Oh, God, we do best in the shadow of your wing. We do best. We do best at your feet, oh, God, so close to you, Lord, that all you have to do is whisper and we hear you. Lord, we, we're fools. We often run. We often run away from you. We try to do our own thing. And, God, some of us are stubborn, some of us are so strong willed. We can do it a long time. Dear Jesus, break us. Break the strong-willed God for their good, please. Help us by your Spirit to want nothing, God, but what you want. Help us to rejoice in the things you rejoice in. Please be glorified in all these things. And may your glory be our greatest concern. We magnify you. and We love you.